The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Glory be to you alone, Father. You alone are worthy of praise. You are God over all, maker of heaven and earth. You are almighty. You are all-knowing. Summarized as the angels cried out amidst a throne room shaking full of smoke, you are holy, holy, holy. Glory be to you alone. And amazingly, you, Father, you made us, and when we fell in sin, apparently thwarting your plan to bring glory to yourself, and instead just bringing shame, you did not crush us, but set about to save as you planned all along, to bring even greater glory to your name, to display your mercy and your grace where there should be none to show more of Yourself even than would have been known. Glory be to You. And then even on top of that, once You save us, Lord, You involve us as Your, You call us Your children, Your people. We are indeed subjects of a King, but we are not just subjects. We are also friends and children. A people for Your name a people in fellowship with You, included in Your family, and on top of making us, and on top of saving us, You, You almighty, glorious God, You have invited us into Your work, co-laborers with You. That is amazing. It is a privilege. We look at a passage today that will point our minds in that direction hidden beneath perhaps a bunch of texts that that does not seem particularly relevant to us, you have a message for us about our laboring with you, our fighting with you. We are in your kingdom and we are laborers, servants, warriors with you for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of your name, empowered by you, standing alongside of you to fight with you. What a privilege. Thank you for that. And this morning, Lord, would you work here in this room in our minds and hearts so as to call us to this purpose and alert us to this privilege and to move us to fight. To fight in hope more than to just aspire for the growth of the kingdom and for the glory of your name, but to fight for it. Move your people, Lord. Speak, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Use this passage and keep the words that I say that are helpful and right and keep them and and press them in and cause them to rest and stay there. Cause particular words and phrases and sentences from your Word to rise out and shine and, and, and find a home in our hearts. So that you would speak. That's what I'm praying, Lord. 
Move here. Cause us to be a different people. Grow your church. Honor your name. Thank you for involving us in that. I'm thankful for that. Make us a thankful people. Have your way with us. This has already been prayed earlier, Lord. Would you hover over us? And if there's any sin that needs to be forsaken, move in your people right now. Distractions, Lord, clear them away. Cause us to focus. Teach us, grow us, I pray. And bring honor to your own name. Do us good in that way, drawing us to you, honoring you. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. We turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 and following. A list of a bunch of names, which I imagine, as some of us read it this week, perhaps in anticipation of this, thought a list of boring names. I hope we skip it. Or perhaps you thought, it'd be interesting to see if Steve could pronounce all those names. I can't. But we'll we'll try. But we're not skipping it because there's a message for us here, as we should expect given the place that it falls here in the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel combined. You recall this is all one great big book, and as we've been noticing for the last several weeks, we are at the the end in the, the summary section of Samuel, with several chapters here, 21 through 24, of events gathered together. This is not arranged chronologically. They are gathered together, carefully positioned so as to to put something in front of us, to remind us, to reinforce for us why it is, how it is that David is the answer to the problem, the whole problem for God's people and really for the whole world. The problem has been raised throughout this book of First and Second Samuel, the need for a king, a ruler over us. David's the answer to that problem. Really, one from David's house is the answer to that problem, as we saw last week in the first seven verses of this chapter. David spoke slash wrote to us. He expressed to us this vision that he looks down through time and he sees ahead coming a ruler, one who rules in righteousness and justice and in the fear of the Lord and who shines out like a sun dawns on his people and shines on them like a, the morning sun rising up and shining on wet ground so that fresh grass sprouts up and life comes forth even while he is also committed to destroying all the thorns. There's a, there's a one coming, a ruler coming. David sees him. Is going to bring in a glorious day. That ruler has come and is still coming. We stand between his two appearances. And so we have something right now every single day to be thankful for and to trust God to be, to be real in our lives today that the sun is shining, that he is committed to and is working on sprouting and weeding. And we have something that is yet to come. A glorious day. It's there. And it is coming for certain. And our problem is that we don't believe it. We talked about this last week. And we plead with God to do the work of the Word and Spirit to cause us to believe, to hope. That was last week, the poetic passage there in 23 that's paired with the poetic passage of of chapter 22 
This is the pinnacle of the whole book about God bringing a kingdom of this sort of king. And if you take a step away from the pinnacle in either direction, back into chapter 21 or today into our passage, what you find is two matches, as a match there too. If you go back into 21, what do you find immediately before the poetry? David and warriors. A giant arises and a Davidic warrior arises and strikes him down. And another giant comes and another warrior arises and strikes him out. And another one kills him. And another one kills him four times. Giving us the impression that if there were a fifth giant to arise, there would be a fifth warrior. If there were 15, there would be 15. 30, there would be 30. Because the kingdom of David is a kingdom in which the king moves warriors to fight to protect and save the kingdom. And that's what we find today again. You're matching on the other side. Reinforcing there is a king and a kingdom with warriors who fight. Us. That's what we're going to be considering today. How the king raises up warriors, servants in the kingdom. To be people who with him, beside him, alongside of him, are committed to laying down our lives, serving, fighting, whatever metaphor we use there, working in the kingdom for the growth and good of the kingdom and for the glory of the king. That's what we're going to consider today in this lengthy passage. There are more enemies that always arise, and God deals with them by moving us to fight. So let me read 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 39. And I will have trouble with all these names. We'll just keep moving. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabath, a Tecumanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. 
These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, doer of great deeds. He struck down two Ariels of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema of Harad. Alika of Harad. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiazar of Anathoth. Mabunai, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Ahohite. Maharai of Netophah. Heleb, the son of Baana of Netophah. Itai, the son of Rabah of Gibeah and of the people of Benjamin. Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abi Alban the Arbathite, Osmaveth of Bahurim, Eliabah the Shalabanite, the sons of Joshan, Jonathan, Shammah the Hararite, Ahayim the son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphelet the son of Ahashbai of Maakah, Eliam the son of Ahithophel of Gilo, Hezro of Carmel, Paarai the Arbite, Ilgal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelak the Ammonite, Nahariah of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab the son of Zariah, Ira the Ithritite, Gerab the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite. 37 in all. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Miri might have another opinion. She's here. <laughs> Mary speaks Hebrew, if you, for those who don't know. The text has two distinct halves. The list of men in 8 through 23 and their various deeds, a couple of short stories there, about six little incidents. And then the second half, the list of men from 24 on, which is just a list of men. Most of our focus is going to be on the first half of the chapter. But taken all together, we have at the very end this last statement, 37 in all. And you can get 37 if you count up all the names and count there to be two sons of Joshan in verse 32. But other people count it different ways. And it's also worth noting that if you were to compare this to the list of the mighty men in First Chronicles, it's a different list, which stands to reason that if you think of David reigned for 40 years, a list of his special fighting men would have some turnover. Casualties and age. So there is, there's a difference in the list. But all of that is, is an aside. This, at, at a, one point in time, it's a list of the core group at the end, men who were devoted to David, and then a, a few particulars at the beginning. Some special ones. We start with the group known as the three Verses 8 to 12. One, the chief of the three, in some battle or another, killed 800 men, which could be all by his lonesome, or it could be that he is credited with that, and maybe a few other retainers around him did some fighting too. The Bible would talk both ways. 
That might explain how you get different numbers in different places. But whatever he did was remarkable. They remarked about it. Next two both have similar stories. They stood to fight when everybody else thought it was better to run away. Eleazar, verse 9, stood with David and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and it gripped the sword hilt, which is a gripping detail. People who comment on this verse, I read one guy who pulled in some other examples from history. This, this has been known to happen in other places where after a long and, and fierce... I mean, if you read that detail and you get some little glimpse of the intensity and the length of the fighting... Somebody recounted how one man, his hand was so fastened, cramped or whatever around the hilt of the sword and so covered with coagulated blood that they had to get a blacksmith to pry his fingers with a tool off of the sword. We are told that to get a picture, it was intense. That guy and the king all by their lonesome. Everybody else ran because it looked bad. But the Lord brought a great victory that day. Verse 11, another man, another Philistine engagement. This time a plot of ground full of lentils. Again, everybody else ran away. But here they are standing on a place that's a, a plot of land of food. And they took, he took his stand there and defended it, it says, verse 12, probably from Philistine raiders. He's fighting for food, for life. And the Lord again brought a great victory. Those are the three. And then in 13 to 18, we get another story about three, perhaps the same three, perhaps different three. It's not completely clear. But they did something audacious. David was in the cave at Adulam, so this could perhaps be during his time before he became king and was on the run from Saul. Or 2 Samuel also recounts how he spent some time there early in his reign when Philistines flooded over the land and chased him out of Jerusalem, so perhaps it's then. But he's on the run in this cave and in a moment of longing says, oh, it'd be just nice to have a taste of home. This place, the Philistines occupy my home. They have an encampment at Bethlehem and, oh, to taste the water from my home well. And they hear that. It's over 10 miles away. They take off, fight through the camp. That's what breakthrough implies. They didn't sneak at night. They, they broke through the camp, get some water, and bring it back. And he won't drink it. Now notice, he did not just throw it away important. He did not just chuck it out. He poured it out to the Lord. That's the language of worship. A language of offering. When you worship a God who has no body, who is not physical and cannot actually eat and drink, but you want to give to Him an offering and and sit down and, and as it were eat or dine or drink with Him, but He can't actually consume it, but you want to say this is consumed all by you, not by me, then you burn it up, some offerings, or you pour it out, other offerings. 
This is worship. And as he does this, he says, I cannot drink the blood of these men. This, this is as if it is their blood. They risked their lives. They gave their lives for this. I'm not worthy of their lives. Only you are. I pour it all out to you. And that honors them, actually. It, not just, he's not denigrating what they did. He's honoring what they did. It honors them, but puts the Lord central. You alone are worthy of this kind of sacrifice. Not me, says the man, David. There's no praise to the man here, only to the Lord. Then there's Abishai, who killed 300 men in his lifetime of service to the king. And then there's Benaiah, we're told he killed a lion, whatever the Ariels are, nobody knows what that is. He killed two of them and a lion, and an impressive Egyptian with his own weapon, very David-like. He's placed in charge of the bodyguard, again, David-like. And then there's the second section, with the long roll call of man after man after man after man, ending with whom? No reader of Second Samuel could miss it. Ends with Uriah the Hittite. Here are these loyal servants who served the king, one after the other, after the other, after the other, willing to give their lives to this king in service to him and in service to the kingdom. And then there's Uriah the Hittite that the king used for his own pleasures. The king killed. It's a sober note at the very end. We'll have to talk about that a little bit. Together, this long list of names, both the stories in the front and then the the long list afterwards, I think is is here to present to us this point. Here's the point I'm going to work towards in, in a couple of distinct observations. God saves his kingdom by means of His fighting servants. Us. God saves His kingdom. God saves His kingdom by means of, He uses means, His fighting servants. Us. You know, make two observations towards that point. Here's the first one. The king draws servants to himself to fight for the good of the kingdom. So I'm focusing here on how the king draws servants for a purpose. And it's also a privilege. Which we, we need to think about this. There's a, there's a purpose here. We're going to see something about our assignment here, a little reminder of something that you probably already know, was already prayed earlier in the service. We have a purpose given to us here, but it is a privilege also. The king draws servants to himself to fight for the good of the kingdom. This is obviously a list of David's mighty men. They're drawn to David. They owe their allegiance to David, even more than to the kingdom itself. They are David's mighty men. They raised up 
They are moved by him, motivated by him. We see this in a couple of ways. First, we see Eleazar very briefly in verse 9. He stood with the king. There's no reason for him to stay there other than David. Everybody else ran away. If he'd run away, maybe David would have. Who knows? The next guy down, Shema, he has a reason. He's got food to defend. The only thing for Eleazar to defend is the king himself. He's with the king. He owes allegiance to the king. We see it very briefly there, but most particularly in 13 and following when the three go fetch the water. Why do they do that? Out of affection and allegiance, love. There's, there's no reason whatsoever. It's about 25 miles round trip, and there's a fight in the middle of it for a drink of water. No reason whatsoever other than pure devotion, affection for the king. These are David's men drawn to David, He has followers here, which is not very unique to him. Saul had followers also. If you look back through history, all kinds of rulers, even today, all kinds of rulers have people who are really very uniquely devoted to them more than to the organization or the country. They're they're about the ruler. So the fact that he has followers, that he is drawn to followers who owe him allegiance and give him allegiance is not unique. What's unique is is what he does with them, what he turns them towards. Because every follower who has, every leader who has followers, they exist to protect and exalt this one, me. But in this story, David takes them and turns them so that they become servants not of the man, but of the kingdom and of the one he acknowledges is the real king. We see this in a couple of places also in the story where we see David's mighty man all by himself defending a field of lentils. Lentils are poor people food. That's not the food of the royal table. The lentil is simple food. But here is a mighty man of David defending the food, the life of the kingdom. See it a little bit there. We see it also in that all these Philistines and the Moabite and the Egyptian, all these guys fought. They were not just personal enemies of David. They are the enemies of the people. David uses them to defend not just his own person, but to defend the realm, the kingdom. But particularly, again, the central story, 13 through 18, 13 through 17, what does he turn their devotion towards? Who does he turn their devotion towards? They have an instant, they hear him just remark about how the water would be nice. And your wish is a my command sort of affection exists in them. They're off to get it. And they come back and David sees that devotion to himself and does one of these. Steps out of the way and points them to the Lord. I am not worthy of that. That is remarkable. That is wonderful. Amen, I commend it. I'm just not worthy of it and I won't take it. He points them to the Lord away from himself. He is most committed to have a kingdom and to have servants in the kingdom who, amen, yes, absolutely are willing to lay down their lives, who are willing to fight, who are willing to serve. Yes, but not me, the Lord. He turns their affections 
towards God. A God-centeredness. We need to pause on this and think about it. All of our service, and in fact, all of our communion, by which I mean all of our togetherness, all of our us-ness, all of what we are as a people, must have at the center of it God Almighty Himself. And all of us must be, and and everyone who might be a leader in it, such as myself, all of us must be very concerned, very committed, very clear that all of our affection and all of our service and all of our devotion is pointed at that one in the center of the Lord and not at anything else or anyone else. This is immensely important because that is what is our good as a people. It is what the Lord is worthy of absolutely. But if we are to be about, and I'm about to say that we are, if we are to be about serving and sacrificing and fighting for the sake of the kingdom and for its good and for its growth, let's be clear about that. What that means is we are about fighting in the kingdom that the Lord would be in the center of the kingdom and not any man or any agenda. The Lord Himself. He is what is precious here. God. He's the only one worthy of anything that we might sacrifice or that we might do, of any affection that we might have. God Himself, one worthy of our lives, of drinking this blood, this offering of our lives. David receives the water from Bethlehem, probably stunned by it, and he shows this is what this kingdom is about. And he pours it out. It is not about me. It is not about the service of me. It is about the worship of and service of this one, the Lord Almighty. Amen, David. That's the kind of king we need. Uriah the Hittite. Almost. David's almost the king we need. Because there's Uriah the Hittite. Unavoidably there at the end. David, better than most, said, your life and your sacrifice, he draws them out, he raises them up, he equips them. You are servants and you are warriors. You are mighty men in my kingdom. But it is not my kingdom, it is his kingdom. More than anybody Ever, he takes people in their service and in their sacrifice and points them to the Lord, but he is just a man. And unavoidably and tragically, we, we saw chapter after chapter of, of heartache and tragedy and wickedness when David takes and does turn it to the service of himself. And he sins against Uriah the Hittite and against Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Ah! You know, David's the kind of king we need, but not quite the kind of king we need. We need one better than that. How do you get one better than that? How do you get one better than David? Well, David already told us last week, there's one coming, I see him. There's a ruler coming from my house, as the Lord promised. A son of David, who's better than me. A son of David who will do this great good 
for the kingdom. This great good of setting God at the center of all that we are and all that we are about and holding Him there. It's a precious thing. So you know who I'm talking about. When Jesus, the Son of David, comes, all of His ministry, all of His ministry is about restoring to the center of human beings who have wandered off into all kinds of idolatrous worship. Restoring to the center of individual human beings and of a people. Restoring to the center of their worship and of their hope as the source of their joy, as the focus of all their service and sacrifice, as the power that runs through their hands and out their lips. God Himself Christ Jesus is about God-centeredness among a people. And He does it. Like the sun rising to dawn and shine so that we flourish and grow. He does it. He is drastically, dramatically committed to it in all of His power. He does it. He does not just aspire for it to be and wish that it was so. He makes it happen gloriously. Not in full yet, but indeed right now. Look at yourself. If you're a Christian, it started in you. You care. Period. Look, that's different because in your flesh you don't. In your flesh you don't. He's already started in you. You care. Now, you can probably sit there and realize He is not yet done even in this life because you don't care near enough. We, we are mixed in our growth and mixed in our deliverance, aren't we? But He is at work to take out of the center of your life the self-centeredness that is innate to every single one of us to pull that out first by crucifying it at the cross and saving you from your sin. And to plant in that a new you, a new life with a new outlook A new person was born in you. You are different if you are a Christian. And if you are not, you can be. But if you're a Christian, you are a different person. And He is at work in you by His Spirit, as we talked about last week and will again today. He is at work in you to do something, to move you towards God-centeredness in your thinking and your loving and in your affection and your service. He is about that right now and calls us to be servants with Him in that work. That's really where I'm going here with this first point. He raises up servants to fight for the good of the kingdom. I was just trying to explain a little bit about what the good of the kingdom really is. The good of the kingdom is not really a successful outcome to your surgery. We pray for that, sure, and and long for it and are thankful for it when it happens. But the good of the kingdom is this drawing of our hearts, our eyes, our hoping towards God Himself right in the middle. That's what's really good. And He calls all of us, when He saves you, He assigns you. 
and calls all of us to be servants, to be warriors in the kingdom for that good. For yourself and for the people sitting next to you. So indeed we can look and we can say in the church there are assigned ministers with a capital M, ministers. You can find that throughout the New Testament. There, there are particular people who are called to be ministers. And we also, can we not, we also can find plenty of places. Just run through your mind Ephesians 4 where we all are ministers. Think of that chapter there just vaguely. We're not going to look there for time's sake. But God gives ministers with a capital M to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to be ministers, lowercase m. To mix metaphors, a body with parts, each one with a part. Each part has a part. But all of those parts part. Every part's part is to do good to the kingdom. That is, to work, to fight, to wrestle, to speak, to hope, to pray that God-centeredness might come to dominate this kingdom and that every one of us would say, this service is for the sake of God-centeredness. It is not about any particular man or kingdom or agenda, not about me, the servant, not about an organization that I serve. It's about God in the middle of a people as their hope and their joy. That's what He's called you to. He's raised up servants, drawn them to Himself for the sake of the good of the kingdom. That good. So you have a purpose. You have an assignment. And it is a privilege. A privilege. God Almighty is carrying out a dramatic work in building a people who are different forever and ever and ever with you. For years and years and years, before I ever thought about anything about Samuel as a whole or, or this book as a whole, I loved the story of Eleazar. I, th- I think maybe if you're a, a young boy, I mean, the first time I read that I was probably a teenager. I remember speaking on that when I was very young to a group of, of men saying, can you imagine back to back with the king in a field full of Philistines? Terrifying, probably. Well, you know, when you're fighting with just two of you, you stand back to back. So you're back to back with the king, and they are all around. And we swing all day long until my hand can't let go of the sword. And they lie all around us, enemies dead. And as our friends come back to enjoy the fruit of the victory, we turn around and look at each other and say, Wow. And you know, the adrenaline starts around you and you want to collapse. With the king. With the king when the Philistines came. What a privilege. Can you not imagine how he carried that all the days of his life? They wrote it down. With the king. Against all odds, victory. There is 
a great war here, men and women. Privilege to you is that the king calls you into it to fight with him, to stand. It's work, which we're going to come to, with the king. Privilege. It's work. Privilege. That stirs me to think here is, not that battle anymore, but here is a battle and a war that we are engaged and we are in the midst of. We, we forget this. I'm, again, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we forget this sometimes, but we are in the middle of, of a war and we have a king who is omnipotent. God Almighty is engaged and has promised a victory, is carrying it out, and uses us. That's amazing. Have you not ever experienced, I pray that you have, the, the, the privilege, the joy of praying for something or of, of speaking to someone or of engaging in some sort of, of difficult situation and seeing a turn, seeing God move, God do something, and you think, He used me. Privilege. He didn't have to. He's omnipotent. He can do whatever He wants to. But he used me. So we have purpose and privilege here. He's going to use you. He uses means. He can thunder from heaven. He did that in Samuel. 1 Samuel 7. He thundered from heaven and defeated the Philistines. He can do that without anybody's help. But most of the time he uses means. He works providentially. Using us. That's a marvelous thing. He raises up servants to himself to deploy them for the good of the people, the kingdom, comma, which is the God-centeredness of the kingdom. He wants to use you to draw us all to him. That's a privilege and a purpose. Second point, it's also work. So here's the second point. As the servants fight, God draws near in grace to save. As these servants, drawn out, raised up, equipped, strengthened, as these servants fight, God draws near in grace to save. I see this particularly in, in 9 through 12. But we're told there, I think, is implied throughout all the stories. So then we see Benaiah fighting as David had before. We would think about how David won that victory. It was by the Lord. He had to fight, but it's God who draws near to save. Verse 9 says, Eleazar fights with David, a desperate struggle, as we noted. Gripping detail there. He fought and fought and fought. And Eleazar won a great victory that day. No. It says, And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Same thing in the next story. Shema fights in this field, takes a stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. He did not work supernaturally. 
He worked providentially, using those men, using their muscles, using their determination, using their skill. He worked providentially. A doctrine that we've seen a lot of in this book, providence, the doctrine of providence, to refresh your memory. God works through the ordinary functioning of secondary means to accomplish His purposes. So God has a purpose. He intends something. And He brings it about through the ordinary functioning of secondary means. So, rain can be a secondary mean that functions ordinarily. We can understand clouds and and the, the water cycle and it rains and God uses rain to accomplish His intended purpose. Here in this case, muscles and brains and blades all work in certain ways, ordinarily. And He uses that to accomplish His purpose providentially. Bringing victory or literally it is salvation. He draws near in grace to save. It is not any obligation that He is under. None of our efforts, none of our working, none of our sacrificing obligates Him to do anything. He is no man's debtor. He does His own purpose. So it is a gracious work, but He uses us. That's the lesson for us here. He calls us to be servants for the good of the people, and it is a fight. It's a fight. It's a fight of hope because God gives the victory at the end. God's going to accomplish His good purpose to deliver His people and ultimately to put Himself at the center of us in in fullness one day. That, That day is coming. So there's great hope in this fight, but it is a fight every single day, every step of the way. We have an enemy. Think about this. This it is, it is so easy for us to overlook this, especially because we live in a place where, where our enemy is, is, is only mildly pers- personified. There, nobody, I, I expect, is going to break through the doors and try to shut us down here in the next ten minutes. So it's very easy for us to forget this because we don't see it in the flesh and blood. We don't realize that our non-flesh and blood enemy actually is just as real today here as he ever has been. We have an enemy who hates us. Speaking to Christians, the Bible also says very soberly that if you're not a Christian, he hates you too, but in a more subtle way since he already has you as his servant. He hates us. Put a point on that. He hates you. He does not dislike you. He doesn't disapprove of your lifestyle. He doesn't prefer an alternative way. He hates you. And he's strong and smart. It very much is a man and the king 
surrounded by Philistines. They are not going to be bargained away. These are not David's three chief negotiators. None of them wielded a pen. Because it is not mightier than the sword in in this type of fighting. It is about muscle and blood and blade. And it is gruesome. That's war. We are in a war. Do you believe that actually? I think very commonly, very commonly, we expect, and, and perhaps it's our generation, I don't know, but we, we expect, even expect war to be rather quick. Maybe it's because, maybe I'm thinking of my generation more than, than some of the older folks here in the room, but you know, my generation grew up, many of us, watching war on TV that looked like a video game. And that, frankly, was, was over before it started. That's not how war usually works. And spiritual war, I think, we, perhaps colored by all that, we expect war to be, I resist once and then it's over. I tell Satan I'm not interested and he moves on. I, I have one very good intense prayer time on Tuesday afternoon, and that's good for the month. We think like this. I, I think constant attack. And if you're not being under attack, it's because he's plotting the next attack. This is a fight. There is hardship here. We must not give up and we must not expect easy victory soon. Now, I color all of that by saying you must remember over all of it a tremendous hope because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. That is true. And though Jesus promised affliction, He, almost, he also promised Himself with us in the affliction and promised an end to the affliction. So there is hope in this war. But what I'm trying to do, I hope, is awaken us to the fact that there's a fight on. And when He calls us to be servants of the kingdom and, and that people engage in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, the ones in our family, the ones in our church family, engage in this grand effort to put God at the center and do good to us and honor to Him in that way, we face one who is hell-bent on stopping that. That's just the reality. It will not be easy. You must fight. So, so how? How do you fight? How do you fight? Well, what's the fight about? That's important to think. What is the fight about? Because sometimes I think the fight feels... I mean, I, I can kind of, kind of press on this language and I can use this language of the, of the, the warfare here and, and it feels very bloody. And then I can talk about um, us as servants in the church and, and us wanting to be God-centered in our thinking. And it gets kind of fuzzy. Like, what, what does that mean? 
It obviously isn't physical like that. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So what exactly is the fight about? The fight is not about not sinning. That might seem counterintuitive, but the fight is not about not sinning. That's an outcome, but that's not the actual struggle. The fight's about something else. If I want to make it very simple and put it in a word, the fight is about faith. The fight is about faith. Now, to elaborate on that a little bit, it is about sin and it is about worship, but all of that is derived from what do you believe? Who do you believe? The fight is not physical. The fight is not even about the physical things that you can see. The fight is, is what's going on inside of here. What do I believe? What do I trust in? Where's, where's my heart anchored for hope in the world here? And the enemy's assault that comes at you, again, it is not physical. It is not actually literally like this one with men and weapons. The enemy's assault that comes at you is an offer of an alternative belief. It's, it's another offer of hope. It's a better bargain. A good deal. Here's where you can find the life that you're looking for. The hope that your heart longs for. The rest that you think you need. You can find it right here. And it's, it's a good price. Quite cheap today, in fact. Here. And against that, there's another offer. No, in fact, here is life. Life found in this one who loved you and came to save you and promises you full inheritance in the kingdom and life forevermore with the one in whose presence is fullness of joy. The fight is like two salesmen, if you will, trying to convince you to buy. You will buy, you will act on what you are convinced is best, what you are convinced is true, the offer that is good. There's the fight. What's going on in here? How does faith come? By hearing and by the Word of Christ. So I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight the right battle. I, I'm not going to fight not to sin. I'm going to fight to believe. I'm going to fight to help you believe. I'm a servant to you. And I'm going to fight that you would believe and that I would believe that I would hear this offer from God compared to this offer from the world, from the flesh, from the devil and I would believe this one, the tool that I take into my hand is the Word of God, either written on the page here, 
perhaps sung in a song, perhaps seen lived out in your life, experienced by you last week, the Word of God, the truth of God, I must take that. That's what I must hear if faith is to come to me. I take the Word. I put it in front of the eyes for the one I'm trying to fight, myself or for you, and then I pray, pray, pray that God the Spirit moves because He must win the victory. I have no power. None. I have to put the Word in front of me or you. I'm trying to help you. And I have to, to fight in front of it with an attitude of, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief because I see the offers here. I, I know in my head, as, as we do, we know in, my, in our heads that this is, this is good, but the numbers don't add up. I don't see it. This looks better. Help my unbelief. And we pray, pray, pray that God moves. He must move and shine and open, transform on the inside. That is a work of the Spirit in conjunction with the Word. So we as servants have a part. It is a part of preaching and praying. Neither of which themselves move the human heart. Only God the Spirit moves the human heart. Which is why it says and pushes upon us, the Lord worked a great victory. The Lord worked a great victory. The Lord. So we have to fight. That's how this kingdom is structured. We have a God who reigns as king over the kingdom and has called every one of his servants into the kingdom, not just to be recipients of, but to be practitioners of kingdom work. And all of our kingdom work is centered on putting God central in the hearts of the kingdom. And all of our kingdom work is hoping in the power of God to work to make Himself central in the hearts of the kingdom. It's all about Him. It is from Him. It is for Him. It is to Him. It is through Him. It is all of Him. And the privilege of including us in that is remarkable. Remarkable. So we go to Him and, and say, God, would You please build Your church? Would You please save Your people? Save us from unbelief and falsely fastened faith. Save us. And He will do that by Word and Spirit. 
A word that, that is seen in life and, and the Spirit then causes us to believe that God who did that is the same God today. A word that is read off the page. It's sung in a song. Heard from another Christian in, in a coffee shop somewhere. The Word and Spirit by which God saves His people today and tomorrow until He finally fully saves. He raises up His servants to save, builds His kingdom. Praise be to Him. Let me pray. Lord, would You please draw near in grace to save us from our unbelief. To save us from the lures dangled in front of us. Lord, would You cause Your Word to to run and to seem to be what it is. Truth and life. It doesn't seem like that to us sometimes, Lord. It seems just like ink on a page. And the offer from the the world seems appealing and real. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth. Would You raise up from Your people here in this particular local congregation, would You raise up a servant mindset that is particularly God-centered? God-centered in motivation and God-centered in goal. Thank You for providing power for that. Thank You for Your Spirit. Would You cause Him to have His way with us, whatever that means for each individual person in the room here. Would You save some for the first time? Lord, there are people here, I'm sure, who who don't know You. Save. Give life. Those who are struggling with particular sins, show them, Lord, men and women and Teenagers and and younger kids, show them the truth in all of its beauty and the lie in all of its ugliness. Those who are dealing with hurt and pain, God, please shine on them the truth of You and Your comforting grace drawing near. The hope that a heart set on You can know. The joy unspeakable and full of glory. Spirit, have your way with whatever it is that each individual needs here. Please move and save your church. Speak to your people the truth and cause it to find a rest. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.